What is the uh, proper role of morality in political thought? If we try to promote moral ends in our shared political life, does that make us idealists, utopians, or moralists? What if we acknowledge the power struggles that characterize public political life and the disagreement that people have about first principles? Does that make us realists? But if we are realists, must we keep the findings of moral philosophy out of our public political evaluations and prescriptions? What is the right balance of airiness and earthiness in political thought? In the academy today, there is a debate between moralists and realists. A moralist tends to think that policy prescriptions can and ought to be based on rational principles on which people can agree. Consensus is the aim. Let's agree on first principles and then act. Realists, on the other hand, contest this idea that the aim for consensus is advisable or even possible. For the realist, there will always be struggle. Politics is messy. Keep moral philosophy out of it. And really, what does moral philosophy have to do with it anyway? Unblock the Suez Canal. Keep rioters out of the US Capitol. Prevent chaos and anarchy. What do these ends have to do with your airy moral theory? In addition, many books from the likes of the historian Paul Johnson, the economist Thomas Sowell, the political theorist Mark Lilla, they aptly demonstrate the harm that might be done when intellectuals like Marx, for example, or Heidegger produce theories that when put into practice, inspire movements that result in revolutionary violence or nationalistic fervor, the lamentable loss of life. Keep your speculative, speculative philosophy out of it. That's the view of the Machiavellian realist who justifies his decisions based on efficacy, based on the standard of effectual truth that is to say, the degree to which he can effectively accomplish his political aims, those which concern the basic necessity of political life, maintaining order and safety. This debate between moralists and realists matters, I think, because it concerns the very manner and purpose of thinking about politics. How should we think about public political life? What is the aim of political society? These are fundamental questions about political theory that moralists and realists are debating. David Hume was an 18th century Scottish philosopher, the leading man of letters in England and on the continent after the death of Montesquieu. And I think Hume can help us both understand this debate and what I regard as its futility. Hume can show us that the very distinction between moralist and realist is a silly one, a scholarly invention, and not a very useful one. That is because every political theory must attempt to locate what is good for the human person, individually and socially, and through an effort of persuasion, try to have that understanding incorporated into legal and political structures. Every political theory must explore the reality of human nature and human experience in order to locate the means by which to promote those desirable, those good ends. Every political theory then is in some sense moralistic. It provides us with a conception of what is good for human beings and how to get there. Some prominent realists 
today claim that we can look to Hume for guidance on how to be a realist. They suppose that Hume elevated politics over theory, experience over philosophy, reality over morality. But no political theory, I argue, can elevate one over the other. I will draw from one of the chapters of my book manuscript entitled Liberalism's Founding Myth, David Hume and the Modern Political Imagination, in order to show how Hume can indeed be an instructive guide on how to do political theory in a way that defies the categories of realist and idealist. He begins with experience, he devises a theory, and engages in a project of public enlightenment designed to shape public opinion and to generate consensus on the shared ends of public political life. Now, who was David Hume? David Hume was born in 1711, and he died in 1776. This date is fitting, given his influence on the founding fathers of this country. Hume influenced not only Alexander Hamilton's views on political economy, but also James Madison's views on factions. And when Publius, the pseudonym under which J. Hamilton and Madison wrote the Federalist Papers, when Publius mentioned the new political science, he chiefly had the political ideas of Montesquieu and Hume in mind. Hume wrote a famous essay, in fact, entitled that politics may be reduced to a science. Hume lived and wrote in the middle of what has been called the Scottish Enlightenment, which is often considered less radical than the French Enlightenment, though it must be said that Hume was very popular among the philosophes in France. The French called him Le Bon David, one prominent Enlightenment scholar, Peter Gay, in the 1960s, referred to Hume as the corpulent favorite uncle of the French philosophic family. And he was indeed a big boy. My wife, in fact, recently called him David Humongous. Oh, good one. Peter Gay even referred to Hume as the perfect modern pagan. Uh, that is debatable, but for what it's worth, Hume loved good conversation and good wine. Well, that doesn't make you a pagan, of course, but on the topic of religion, Hume thought himself too radical for England and not radical enough for France. Still, he spent most of his life in Great Britain, and there he earned the nickname of the Great Infidel on account of his irreligiosity. In spite of this, Adam Smith described him as nearly a nearly perfectly virtuous man. Smith famously said, following Hume's death, I have always considered David Hume as approaching as nearly the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of human frailty will allow. And Hume was certainly interested in promoting virtue. He considered himself first and foremost a practical moralist. In his magisterial treatise of human nature, of which you read some excerpts for today, Hume presented his moral anatomy as a kind of realism, a cold and unentertaining investigation of the hidden springs and principles of human behavior. Francis Hutcheson, one of the earliest and best known philosophers of the Scottish Enlightenment, accused Hume of failing to exhibit an adequate warmth for virtue. But Hume did acknowledge in the treatise and in his later works that the role of the moral anatomist who exposes what is most hideous in the human person 
is to assist the moral painter in illuminating the path to virtue. Hume claimed not only that an anatomist is admirably fitted to give, to give advice to the painter, but also that the most abstract speculations concerning human behavior necessarily become subservient to practical morality. The end of all our moral speculation is to teach us our duty, Hume insists, and to engage us to avoid vice and embrace virtue. Hume the realist, then, is also Hume the moralist, and we can't fully understand Hume without understanding both of these aspects of his thought. The end of Hume's moral anatomy is practical or painterly in nature to regulate our lives and actions, and by contributing to private and public happiness, to advance the true interests of mankind. But what are these true interests of humankind? This is where theory comes into play. Paul Sager, a Hume scholar, has argued that Hume decreases the role of theory itself in the philosophical understanding of politics. According to this interpretation, Hume elevates politics above theory. But Hume, in fact, develops a robust theory about human nature, about what is good, about what constitutes progress, and about how to achieve progress. Interestingly, for all the talk of Hume as a realist, Hume begins his political science with a generalization that, while true in theory, is false in practice. Here is a puzzle, a paradox, in Hume's theory that I think is worth attending to. While Hume is interpreted as a realist, he uses as the starting point for his political theory a principle that is unrealistic or false in practice. Here is his starting point. Hume theorizes that for the sake of political theory, every man ought to be supposed a knave and to have no other end in all, his, in all of his actions other than private interest. Now, knave is not a word that is thrown around every day. It signifies a deceitful fellow, a trickster, someone who wants above all to get ahead. Hume's version of realism, which is supposed to start with the facts on the ground, with the opinions, beliefs, and customs of the people, takes as its starting point an axiom that is untrue to the facts on the ground, as Hume admits. In fact, Hume says that human beings are actually motivated by a broad range of passions, including ambition, avarice, self-love, vanity, friendship, generosity, and public spirit. But for the sake of politics, we must assume that all individuals are knaves. This suggests, I think, that theory always has primacy when discussing human affairs, even if one were to adopt a purportedly realistic approach to political investigation. We make assumptions about human nature, and we make assumptions about what is good for human beings. The task of politics from a Humean point of view, which starts with universal knavishness, is to control and redirect knavish behavior to the good of all. This is widely acknowledged even by political realists. But what constitutes the good of all? The notion of the good of all cannot be articulated without venturing into the realm of morality, a move which contemporary realists try desperately to avoid, but this cannot be avoided, and Hume does not avoid it. In the treatise, Hume clearly and repeatedly equates pleasure with the good. 
And in so doing, he adopts the psychological hedonism evident in the writings of Hobbes and Locke. As Rachel Cohen rightly notes, Hume is a hedonist in the sense that he takes the good in life to be pleasure and the evil to be pain or uneasiness. Certainly Hume, in his unpublished essay of suicide, confirms that the good in life is measured by pleasure while the evil in life is measured by pain or burden. For Hume, when pain is expected to routinely outweigh pleasure, life is no longer worth living. This was shocking to Presbyterian Scotland. But similar to the approach of the ancient Hellenistic philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans alike, who described life as something like a dinner party. When it stops being fun, no one will blame you for leaving a little early. Hume's political theory is oriented toward the promotion of utility, but utility itself is a moral concept drawn from Hume's own inquiry concerning the principles of morals. Utility is a moral category rooted in considerations of pleasure and pain. Utility, as Jer Jeremy Bentham would later argue, is concerned principally with the advancement of pleasure. For Hume, the pleasant and the useful are the central determinants of moral virtue. They are foundational features of Hume's moral thought, and they feature prominently in his political thought as well. Insofar as Hume engages in the practice proper to political theory of trying to locate what constitutes the good of all in political society. Hume predated the utilitarians. He was an influence. Uh, he influenced the later utilitarians. But in, in, in this sense, in his time period, we can say that Hume was a utilitarian in the sense that he thought political society should promote happiness. In fact, Hume writes, the great end of all human industry is the attainment of happiness. For this were arts invented, sciences cultivated, laws ordained, and societies modeled. Hume supposes then that the promotion of virtue and happiness fall in some sense within the remit of the state. Happiness for Hume requires virtue, good morals, which Hume thinks are best promoted by wise laws and institutions. Hume's idea of virtue though is very specific. It's not the generic realist account of virtue, which Machiavelli presents as a kind of manliness or public spiritedness. Humean virtue is commercial rather than martial, civic, or monastic in nature. One of Hume's central points is that Stoic and Christian conceptions of virtue, which prioritize martial valor or monkish humility respectively, do not contribute to the public good in a modern commercial society and thereby ought not to find institutional support in such a society. In other words, wise laws and institutions from a human perspective promote useful traits like industry, frugality, honesty, integrity, and agreeable ones like joviality and civility, rather than say the rigorous spirituality you might find in a confessional state Hume thinks that humility, solitude, penance, and martial heroism, these are simply not virtues in the modern world, and they ought not to be promoted. Hume's ideas about what constitutes the good, what constitutes virtue, and the institutional means by which to promote these worthy ends, they're highly theoretical. These ideas are inseparable from Hume's analysis of what constitutes a good society advancing the good of all. 
Now remember, for Hume, universal knavishness is the starting point. It is for this reason that Hume's conjectural narrative of the origin of justice in the treatise, which he read for today, has been described as a replacement of the biblical narrative of fall and redemption. The path from barbarism to civilization replaces the movement from fall to redemption. Annette Bayer, a renowned Hume scholar, calls justice in Hume's theory the recipe for our salvation. In this sense, I think, to use the distinction between realism and idealism that is pervasive today, Hume, the celebrated realist, is also inescapably a kind of idealist. Hume's approach to politics requires an understanding of what salvation entails. That is to say, a vision of the world not only as it is, but also as it might be. Hume, even more so than Adam Smith, is probably the greatest advocate of commercial society, of the material and moral benefits of commerce, of the benefits of the free exchange of goods and ideas. For Hume, it is agreement and abidance by the laws of justice, private property, consent to the transference of property, and freedom of contract that advanced humankind from barbarism to civilization, from primitive to civilized living. More so than religion or philosophy then, economic activity propels us from ignorance, sloth, and barbarism toward knowledge, industry, and humanity. Hume's theory of moral development is Carl Venerland, a Hume expert right there at Barnard notes, foregrounds the institutions of property, markets, and money as the best means to develop and safeguard moral improvement. Economic activity transforms knavishness so that what starts as self-seeking, the desire for wealth and advancement, ends up advancing the public good. This means though, that in order to affect this transformation from self-seeking to public interest, the government is tasked with animating people with a spirit of avarice and industry, of art and of luxury. By animating the, the public with this spirit, Hume thinks that the government can contribute to both the promotion of prosperity and advancement in the arts and sciences. This theory of progress necessitates a proper social structure, not a pure republic that breeds faction between warring parties, not a confessional regime that breeds religion or in Hume's mind, superstition, and certainly not a feudal re regime that breeds tribalism but a commercial regime that breeds humanity. According to Hume, civilized societies produce moral judgments that are superior to those made in pre-commercial societies that were dominated by feudal and religious communities in which moral judgments were distorted by partiality and conflicts of interest. For Hume, the advancement of civilization over barbarism, of humanity over inhumanity, it's tied to economic advancement. That is why John Stewart, the Hume scholar, not the former host of The Daily Show, writes that for Hume, the primary relationship beyond the scope of love is economic. Therefore, the universal order is economic, not political or religious. For Hume, justice and government are best understood as a transformative mechanism, the means by which the reign of self-interest in the more natural state is turned into the reign of humanity in the civilized state. Humanity or fellow feeling is for Hume the unique trait of civilized ages. 
Despite Hume's efforts to describe self-love or universal knavish, knavishness as morally neutral, as an indifferent axiom, his entire political theory is rooted in the search for the institutional means by which to overcome the evils caused by human selfishness or partiality and to promote the good of humanity, a kind of impartiality, a fellow feeling. And this is done, Hume thinks, by unleashing the economic spirit. Hume assesses the legitimacy of social and political institutions in a highly moralized sense. Hume theorizes that a commercial regime will generate not only industriousness, but also sympathy and humanity, which make people more sociable, more impartial, more virtuous. For this reason, Hume writes that the greatness of a state and the happiness of its subjects, how independent soever they may be supposed in some respects, are commonly allowed to be inseparable with regard to commerce. In the civilized society that Hume describes in the essays and the history, human beings no longer living in solitude, which is peculiar to ignorant and barbarous nations, instead flock into the cities and find an increase in humanity from the very habit of conversing together and contributing to each other's pleasure and entertainment. A civilized and polite society is one in which the conventions of justice and government and good manners produce an environment in which individuals can make more refined moral judgments rooted in the shared sentiment of humanity. For this reason, Ryan Hanley has called humanity the normative end of Hume's practical philosophy. And humanity, according to Hume, is the chief characteristic which distinguishes a civilized age from times of barbarity and ignorance. Now, Hume first laid out this connection between economic advantage and moral progress in a treatise of human nature. And after he wrote that book, he embarked on a project of translation. He translated his new political science for the broad reading public. It's a little bit like a graduate student who writes a dissertation. The dissertation is never ready for public consumption. Uh, you're not going to see it at Barnes & Noble. You have to translate the dissertation to another language, the language of regular human beings, if you want it to be understood by the reading public. And Hume knew that he had to translate his work for public audience if he were going to fulfill his ambition of contributing to the instruction of mankind and of acquiring a name by his inventions and discoveries. Hume had spent 10 years working on a treatise of human nature. It was dense. It was lengthy. It did not sell well. He lamented that the treatise was a commercial failure, but Hume was only 28 years old when he wrote it. I have it back here. Here it is. Dense, lengthy, fell deadborn from the press, according to Hume. So in order to fulfill his ambition of instructing humankind and achieving literary fame, Hume began to publish his philosophy in bite-sized pieces, releasing short essays that made his philosophical principles accessible to popular audiences. And Hume's plan worked. He divided his treatise into three shorter inquiries with short, eloquent chapters. He published essays that covered a wide range of topics from moral philosophy to political economy to cultural criticism. And his essays, along with his six volume history of England, they were all bestsellers, giving Hume the literary fame and the wealth that he desired by the time he was in his 40s and 50s. Now, Hume wrote his essays, moral, political, and literary, with a specific purpose in mind, to enlighten the public 
in a way that his dense treatise of human nature never could. He compared himself to Socrates in the sense that he tried to bring philosophy down from the heavens into the clubs, assemblies, and coffee houses. I was going to say maybe he tried to bring it from the Tower of Riverside uh, Church down to Columbia, but that's what Dr. Peters does in Haydn. Hume's audience consisted of literate men and literate women who inhabited the rising middle class. The members of the middle class that Hume was speaking to, writing to, they liked to read pamphlets and essays and engage in conversation while drinking coffee, much like I do. But he wasn't drinking McDonald's. I am. Now, at the British coffee shop of the 18th century, you, did, you would not find undergraduates and screenwriters, headphones in, cappuccinos in hand, staring at a computer screen, needless to say. What you would find there was the lively debate, lively debate, and the polite exchange of ideas. And this is the kind of exchange of ideas, mimicking the exchange of goods in the marketplace, that Hume thought of as a culture of commerce, a culture capable of promoting a cosmopolitan ethos, a worldly ethos, one open to new perspectives, and one generous and moderate, impartial and skeptical in its judgments. This was an ethos evident in commercial and polite society that was oriented by what Hume called humanity. And there would be no moral improvement without it, according to Hume. According to another Hume scholar, Thomas Merrill, Hume's case for commerce required a cultural revolution, a reshaping of moral and political thought on the ground. Hume seems to have supposed that a cultural revolution of this kind could sustain a more long-term political revolution. Hume wanted to empower the industrious business class. He saw this class as a growing station of individuals susceptible to his brand of sound philosophy and capable eventually of wielding power in public affairs in a transformative way. Hume's approach to politics then required not only taking the human mind as it is, but also shaping the human mind with particular moral, cultural, and political ends in view. For Hume, laws must be informed by a commercial value system rather than, say, a Christian or Stoic one. And this commercial value system must be both adopted and translated into policy by public actors, which is perhaps one reason why Hume was very happy to see one set of his essays, The Political Discourses of 1752, enthusiastically acclaimed read by leaders in business, trade, and government, and translated into multiple languages. Hume shows us that even the moral anatomist, or one might say the realist, cannot avoid the painterly task of showing his readers, which include philosophers and politicians, the path toward general virtue and good morals in a state. According to Hume, philosophers and politicians are tasked with understanding the general course of things in human affairs, and they should take the theorist's lead when structuring, shaping, and reforming social institutions. Hume does argue that social institutions were developed less by rational foresight than by individual actors. Uh, excuse me. They were developed less by the rational foresight of individual actors than by historical accident. Nevertheless, Hume also suggests that the lessons of the modern age, which he thinks is so thoroughly advanced beyond pre-modern ages, these lessons can be applied for the betterment of society, but to the extent that any political theory points toward better arrangements, it needs to specify what is good, and this is a moral endeavor. So does this mean that Hume is some kind of moralist, an idealist? 
or is he a realist? I think a genuine Humean approach to this question would be to disregard it altogether, to regard realism and idealism as useless scholarly fictions. Hume is concerned both with how the world is and with how it might be in a way that realist and idealist categories do not fully capture. Hume's philosophy, political philosophy, is not only descriptive, but aspirational as well. It is meant to offer guidance based on a persuasive account of the institutional mechanisms that can narrow the gap between what is and what might be, between sloth and industry, between ignorance and knowledge, barbarity and humanity. Hume's political theory serves as a reminder that the real and the ideal, the moral and the political, they go hand in hand. And it is questionable whether in any political theory they can ever truly be sundered. The purported distinction between realism and idealism might be the most unhelpful fiction of all. It evades one of the most basic facts of human existence, that we are moral beings as well as political beings, and that the political is unavoidably an extension of the moral. The theories that we use to judge political institutions, insofar as they involve flesh and blood human beings, must necessarily deal with what we think is good or bad for human beings, the human being as human being. There really is no other political theory than that which Sheldon Wolin described as epic political theory. And Hume's political theory, which is simultaneously realistic in its appraisals of the depths and the heights of human possibility, and aspirational in its attempt to generate consensus about what constitutes a just and humane society, his theory is a grand and ambitious one. And that is what we're doing every time we investigate and discuss the foundations of political life. We are engaging in grand and ambitious theorizing, grappling with some of the most important questions in life, and they are, at the core, moral questions. And Hume recognizes this. Now, thank you for your time. This uh, is my presentation. I'd be happy to...